the National Archives podcast series. This talk is part of our Big Ideas series and is called The Role of Archives in Addressing Refugee Crises. It was presented by Anne Gilliland and James Lowry. This talk was recorded on the 29th of March 2018 at the National Archives Kew. So I'm really delighted today that we have two speakers who are going to talk to us about their work uh, looking at records and ICT at the boundaries of the state, which explores refugees' needs, rights and uses. So we have Anne Gilliland, who is Professor and Director of Archival Studies in the iSchool and Director of the Centre for Information as Evidence at the University of California in Los Angeles. And we have James Lowry, who is lecturer at the Liverpool University Centre for Archive Studies. Thank you very much, Anna. We are really happy to be here today. Thank you very much for asking us. Um, James and I put this project together about nine months ago, very much as a sort of scoping project to try to understand what some of the real problems were that engaged records in global refugee crises and with the goal at the end of a year to basically have some idea about places where um, there could be interventions, technological policy, practice, educational interventions. This, the project has been growing much faster than we expected, obviously, because it's, uh, it is a terrible situation out there. So what we want to do is tell you a little bit about where we've got to so far in terms of actually scoping out the problems and um, hoping that you will give us some feedback that will help us we move forward. There are some handouts. We put an awful lot of stuff on slides and we won't get through all of them today. So we wrote everything down and if I think internally the slides will get sent around, but if anybody else would like copies, there are some made, or we can also supply you with copies as well. Yeah, I think Irene has copies there. So the, the genesis of this work actually comes out of the Archival Education and Research Initiative, ERI, um, for which I am the director. I think it's familiar to many of you, but it is um, a global um, consortium of academics, doctoral students, uh, researchers in practice who um, come together every year to um, talk about the research that they're doing, to try to push research further ahead. And for the last seven years or so, we have been talking about the different ways in which archives and record keepers could intervene in particularly pernicious um, global grand challenges. Societal grand challenges are massive scale, multi-stakeholder, complex and paradoxical problems that threaten entire regions or even the world. We've done quite a lot of work looking at specific areas and where places, as I said, where there could be, where parts of the problems are actually owned by people like us. And what we have come up with is that there are a set of concerns that come up repeatedly across different grand challenges that suggest that if there were concerted efforts to address those kinds of areas, that we actually could have a transformative effect. And several of them are listed here. Some of them, no surprise to anybody, um, the role and use of records in supporting accountability, sustainability, decision-making, 
programme assessment and human rights. Yes, we all know that, but actually not enough of it is happening at the edge of these massive problems. All sorts of issues with um, educating, cross-educating across different fields, different areas of expertise, and capacity building in archival and record-keeping skills. Designing scalable systems and service infrastructure um, to deal with really massive and global kinds of record-keeping problems. A lot of issues that have to do with metadata implementations, a lot of issues that have to do with um, database compatibility and records compatibility as well. And then I think the one that is really the grand challenge for our own field has to do with uh, global integration and accessibility of archival and record-keeping systems and holdings. And, you know, I could continue there and say, and also address privacy, confidentiality, security, intelligence problems, you name it. We want to talk a little bit, as I said today, specifically about um, the project that we have developed. We went into this with four operating research assumptions. First, that the, the global um, refugee crises present a societal grand challenge, um, and that records and record-keeping processes are actually integral to that societal grand challenge, both in, in formal and regular forms, and in all sorts of irregular and informal forms as well. The archival field actually has a humanitarian obligation to do more to support the creation, validation, preservation of the records that can support the survival, resettlement, recovery, and agency of individual refugees and their families. And that includes their descendants as well, because we're looking at a problem that proliferates across generations. However, to do so is going to require a fundamental reorientation of this kind of standalone nature of archives and archive systems. Most archives and archive systems respond first to their own institutional and national and, and sector demands. And they, most of them do not consciously think globally unless it's within their own interest to do so. And then that there are a whole range of policy practice technological and educational interventions that probably are going to be required. So the goals that we set out with to identify and make visible ways in which official records, bureaucratic practices, and more irregular forms and uses of records um, play, um, how they play crucial roles in the lives of displaced people as they travel across state boundaries, interact with governments and aid agencies, and resettle into new countries and interface with their bureaucratic systems or return or are returned to their places of origin. To identify and understand from the perspectives of refugees, governments and aid agencies the roles and implications of ICTs such as cloud services, social media and mobile phones for the creation, movement, preservation and accessing of records to identify ways in which professionals and agencies involved in archives and record keeping in affected countries might contribute and collaborate through digital systems design to identifying and locating, protecting, validating, securing, and certifying such records. And where we say affected countries, we don't just mean the countries from which people are being displaced, but also the countries that are taking in the displaced people, so on both sides. And Fourthly, to identify potential policy recommendations 
supporting specific refugee rights uh, in and to records um, that relate to them. The methods we've been using, literature analysis of UN, national government, aid agency, NGO reports, laws, policies, media coverage um, to try to identify documentary requirements and challenges faced by refugees from different countries, um, interviews and forums with refugees and their advocates, aid workers and officials about their experiences with records. Our experience is that almost every refugee has a story to tell about records and documentation. A series of one-day symposia in various places around the world that have um, been strongly affected by refugees or have been a, a locus for taking in refugees with different stakeholders for three reasons. To raise awareness about these issues. When we first started, people said, Records, why would records and archives people be interested in these questions at all? And now people say, oh, we completely get it. To elicit the kinds of needs and challenges that stakeholders are experiencing, and then to brainstorm potential strategies or researchable questions. To investigate, um, we've been investigating the viability of different kinds of digital technologies such as um, use of blockchain in various contexts and different kinds of mobile apps as well. And then interfacing with other research projects, also working on large global projects, such as the Setting the Record Straight for the Rights of the Child initiative, um, addressing rights into <coughs> records. I'm going to sit down and let James talk. So there are a few ways that we're approaching our research. There are um, obviously going to be um, consultations with refugees over uh, the coming year or two to understand from their perspectives how uh, documentation has helped or hindered them in accessing services and protecting their rights. Um, another angle into to this uh, subject is really to think about the documentation, so doing kind of biographies of document types and understanding how they uh, give effect to processes and that kind of thing. So today I want to read a short excerpt from something we're working on. It's a biography of the document type, the laissez-passer. So in 1999, BBC Radio 3 broadcast a radio play called Document of Identity. It had commissioned this play uh, from Wale Shoinka, the Nigerian playwright. He'd fled Nigeria for the United States in 1994, the year after General Sani Abacha seized power. In 1997, Shoyinka was charged with treason against the Nigerian state, and he knew very well what the implications of this would be, because it was only two years earlier, in 1995, that the uh, outspoken author and Ogoni activist Ken Sarawiwa had been executed. Following the charge of treason, Shoyinka's family received word that his daughter, her name had been added to a government hit list. And so friends of the family working with staff of the American consulate in Lagos worked to, to get uh, the daughter out of the country with her uh, husband and their small children and the, the daughter was pregnant at the time. This scenario is the basis for Shoyinka's radio play. The character of Sulola is the fictionalization of Shoyinka's daughter. Arriving in London en route to the United States, Sulola falls ill and her baby's born prematurely and stateless. 
American officials in London claim that they are unable to issue a visa for the baby because her name is not on her mother's passport. The only way of having the baby's name added would involve surrendering the passport to the Nigerian High Commission, where of course it would be confiscated. So the families push backwards and forwards between the American Embassy in the UK and the Home Office. Although this may have been an example of the inability of bureaucratic structures to accommodate the complexities of real lives, in an interview with the BBC, Shoyinka made connections between the timing of the event and contributions to the US Democratic Party campaign funds by a batch's bagman, Gilbert Shaguri. Shoyinka's suspicions are supported by reference to bureaucratic norms. The refusal of the American Embassy in London to facilitate the family's safe passage to the US does not acknowledge that complications of this sort have been anticipated by international frameworks for documenting the movement of people, and of particular relevance here is the laissez-passe. Literally, let pass, laissez-passe is the name of a document type with a long history that's generally used today to facilitate the movement of the staff of international organisations, but they're also issued by national governments, and they're issued for different purposes and in different forms. So some are for one-way travel and some are for returns. Some are only for nationals who have lost their passports and others are for refugees. There's also a question about where this document type is going to be accepted. So the most striking refusal uh, to accept a laissez-passe occurred in 2008 when an Ethiopian woman, Badassa, was denied asylum in the US after the, U the Department of Homeland Security used Wikipedia to check the validity of the laissez-passe as a document type. Badassa, like Sulola's stateless daughter, was moved closer to being in a state of bare life, finding herself suddenly outside the official documentary regime. There are thousands of refugees in movement around the globe without documentation, and we're concerned in this research project with what is happening to the undocumented. A Turkish artist has compiled a list of refugees who have died trying to or having reached Europe, and it lists some 33,000 uh, 33, deaths since 1993, though most of those have been in the last six years. These statistics have been compiled largely from press reports. The news media's role in creating documentation of these lives and deaths, where official documentation and evidence may be patchy, calls to mind McCamish's notion of evidence of me. So thinking particularly here about those people entered on this list without names. This article, these articles are beyond the disciplinary bounds of archival science because they're not traditional records as defined in terms of evidence of transactions but they are evidence of lives, irregular records that partially stand in for official records that are missing or have never been issued. For those whose bodies can be identified, claimed, and returned to the countries of their birth, laissez-passer will need to accompany them on their final journey under the terms of the International Agreement on the Transfer of Corpses. At the boundaries of the state, while press articles partially stand in for official documentation, official documents like the laissez-passer are demonstrably fluid, multi-purpose and open to different interpretations and applications. Undocumented births and deaths at the edges of the state and those situations where people moving over borders are denied rights, entangled in bureaucratic binds or locked into or out of statuses of citizen and stateless are all records problems. So we wanted to, and thank you James for reading that, it, it gives you a really, I think, visceral insight into the kinds of dilemmas that are faced 
by refugees. These kinds of um, bureaucratic circles are happening absolutely everywhere. And I should have said earlier that we have several fantastic students who are working with us. Um, Emma Cummings at the University of Liverpool, um, Sakina Alalawi um, at UCLA, um, Lauren Sorensen and um, Christelle Jimenez also at UCLA. Um, Sakina has just finished a, a really interesting review of document issues that are being faced by refugees coming out of the Middle East and, and out of not just out of Syria and out of Palestine, but also out of Yemen, documenting very much the kinds of bureaucratic impasses that um, people get themselves into and why they turn then to the irregular document um, industry, because there is a real industry at work there. Just a little bit of background. Refugee rights are derived from the 1951 Refugee Convention and its 1967 protocol, and in general from international human rights and humanitarian law. Uh, the UN estimates that there are, um, the most recent, these are the most recent estimates, 65.6 million displaced people worldwide, um, of whom 10 million are stateless. Um, some of them for multiple generations, and obviously the Palestinians were the first people um, in this category, and that situation has not been resolved since the end of the Second World War. And so we're talking about many generations, and many generations with all sorts of ad hoc documentation in many countries around the world. 22.5 million are refugees. Of those refugees, 51% are under 18 and have to handle document issues for themselves. Some of them are newborns, as James mentioned, and predominantly they are women, teen and child refugees. They face particular and time-sensitive legal um, and dependence issues that are associated with gender, with age, with threat of abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse and violence. The need to try to reunite families or to keep existing families together and uh, also issues of literacy, of never having been exposed to dealing with bureaucracies and complex bureaucracies, and in the case of particularly of younger refugees, of the need to access education wherever they are. So um, there's a lot of things that are um, on this list here that James has already addressed. Um, refugees may be unable or maybe it may be too unsafe for them to carry um, uh, their own records or even to obtain their records that they may alert their own country that they're planning to flee by asking for copies if that if that's the case um, they may make and carry digital images of records on their mobiles or upload them to cloud spaces but those copies that they've made in ad hoc ways are unlikely to meet official trust requirements in many countries um, Records and mobiles may be removed from them at borders by authorities um, on both sides, um, both hostile authorities who want to make sure that refugees will never come back, so they are going to remove every document that they have on them, um, or they may be removed for security reasons going into another country. They may be destroyed, they may be lost, they may be damaged, they may be discarded by refugees themselves who are worried about being sent back to where they came from. Um, 
required records where they came from may have been destroyed, especially in, in major conflict. Um, they may be lost, they may be being withheld from them in their homelands, um, and it may be hard to track down corroborating records or second copies of records somewhere else. And another big problem is that if you have to produce sometimes 10 or 12 particular kinds of documents for um, asylum authorities, that the data points in those documents don't match, and that can be also another reason um, to have your, um, uh, your claim turned down. And in the United States, it's, it's even more difficult at the moment. Babies born along the way um, may not be issued with birth certificates or they may not be able to get birth certificates for the kinds of reasons that James already mentioned. And therefore, they're lacking a foundational record going forward. And the consequences of that um, may show up immediately, may not show up until they leave school, and then they're no longer under their parents' records and they're missing a base document to move ahead for work permits and that sort of thing. Um, and for for residence purposes. Um, so many countries have put ad hoc solutions in place that can cause knock-on problems then um, because those records themselves are not um, either, they're not um, regular in the, the kind of records you would have had under more regular circumstances. And also many aid agencies and asylum advocates as well as refugees don't have the kind of expertise actually that we have, which is to understand how to identify where there might be records, to get a hold of them, and to validate them um, in ways that might support asylum cases. So the sorts of things that we have come up with so far, let me run through this quickly. The role of records and other documentation in refugees' lives. That for a person to thrive and to enjoy rights that's not just dependent on their physical survival and their physical welfare, but also on the robustness of their juridical presence. The UN Convention um, says that individual states should take responsibility for registering refugees and must issue identity papers to any refugee in their territory who doesn't possess a valid travel document. But in some countries, there's simply, well, sometimes there's no country left, sometimes there's no viable bureaucracy or civil service left in those countries, and in those cases, the UN may take over creating those documents and the UN may also be um, including DNA-based um, identity documents um, as part of recreating a base identity record. Um, additional official records and other documentation, including now um, often intelligence information, is required um, by many countries that have put in very... Um, uh, strict vetting requirements to go into them. And one of the problems with the intelligence information is it's actually not available to the refugee at all. So they, they may be blocked for reasons they don't even know why they're being blocked. Uh, and so they can't challenge that record either. Um, and if countries have ceased to exist or if bureaucracies are in total disarray, Somalia, I think is an example, it may be necessary to go back to the records of prior administrations of those regions in order to find relevant documentation, which might mean going back several generations. And this is where often archives that have colonial records come into play, because you, you may have to go back two, three, four generations to look, for example, um, for 
the nationality of a grandparent, does it give you a claim to, to citizenship in another country? Refugees need to be able to locate and obtain copies of certified records to help them to identify themselves and to verify their own citizenship or that of their predecessors. To support claims of prior or potential persecution because that is a requirement for to be considered to be a refugee. Um, to provide evidence of particular rights, for example, the right to work, which is a big problem for many of the Syrian refugees who've, who've ended up in other Middle Eastern countries at the moment. Getting work permits is a big problem. To obtain benefits and health care to attend school. Establishing familial relationships and reuniting families. We talked about this before. One of the complications is certifying marital status. You need marriage certificates. It's a big problem for people who may have been in multiple uh, marriage that has multiple spouses involved um, or where marriage was celebrated with an oral marriage contract as well. To establish property ownership in order to reclaim it if you want to go back, um, to exchange it. There was a lot of exchange of property happened in the region of the former Yugoslavia um, or to sell it as well if you're not going to go back and you want to move on. To certify veteran or other military status, that's one of those examples that cuts in both directions. Some countries won't take people who are former military of uh, former combatants. And in other cases, it's necessary to get military pensions, for example, for widows. Establishing prior education or other qualifications and credentials. It is incredibly difficult for teenagers to move on into higher education who leave countries at the age of being teenagers, too, too old to go to high school and they can't bring their records with them to get themselves into university, and also for claiming reparations. So these are some examples. But what do, what do they need? They need acceptable certified copies of records as fast as you can get them. Time is a big issue. It's not, it's not good enough for records offices or archives to say, well, it'll take us two weeks or three months or six months. It, that's just not, it, they need them immediately. Refugees, especially women and children, may have little or no experience with bureaucracies or how to find records, and most will be unfamiliar with archives. Um, many have no reliable postal address, and they can't necessarily travel to you. So how are you going to get the records to them? Most refugees are unlikely to be able to pay fees for records. Some of them are in sort of holding spaces in towns outside major cities. They're not allowed to leave those spaces. They can't travel physically to get the records. It's different from country to country. Without documents, they may be arrested, deported, or abused. And so instead, they turn to fraudulent documents and to the black market um, for documents. And of course, if they're found with those documents, then it ends their, their cases as well. So it's very, again, a sort of vicious circle. There are several things that have been identified by different stakeholders that archivists could do. And first of all, to point out that there are, very, uh, there are many different kinds of archives out there, and they all have a piece that they could do. So national archives, state archives, public records offices, that hold official records, they um, would be subject to dealing with the kinds of needs that I just talked about um, for official records. Historical collecting archives, libraries, special collections, 
um, build collections documenting both retrospectively and sometimes in the moment as well human rights concerns, refugee experiences and so forth. And one of the people that we were talking to said, of course, you know, we think about community archives, particularly in the United States, as being the entity that deals with these kinds of activities. But in fact, the, the bigger, more robust special collections are often better positioned to do work on the ground in the moment because they've got the resources than our community archives. Community archives tend to be the most activist-oriented forms of archives, initiated, built, managed by, and primarily in the interests of the communities themselves. And then, of course, there are corporate archives. They are the archives of, there's a whole business around refugees, uh, contractors, businesses, that to which um, governments outsource, but also to which NGOs outsource as well. And I'll talk about NGOs specifically in a second. So how might archives help? I uh, talked earlier about the fact that archives tend to be fairly siloed in their interests. How could we be more transnational in the way that we behave and the way that we think? How could transnational strategies and solutions be pursued by archival institutions and implemented? How can the global archival community help those archives um, that are in these very vulnerable spaces as well protect their own records from destruction and or political interference because that's the other problem. The archives, maybe the records are safe, but maybe the government won't allow the archivists to do what should be done with those records and to make copies available, copies that we can stand over in terms of um, the authenticity of the copy to former citizens who now reside outside the country. This is the sort of leading to a big sort of digital question. How can different types of archives work in closer and more strategic coordination to address refugee needs for records and to document refugee experiences? Um, that's sort of more similar to the first point there. And how can archivists who want to work on the ground be more closely and safely engaged in documenting the conditions that lead to refugee crises as well? Um, those are like witnessing projects that are going on. Relevant records from the kinds of records that need to be introduced often are the kinds that aren't deemed to be historically valuable by archives and therefore scheduled out on records retention schedules um, and if they are kept, they may not be indexed at the level of the individual, which is exactly how you need to be able to retrieve these materials. They're not the kinds of materials that are often used, for example, by scholars, and maybe not as much by genealogists, but are needed uh, in this particular situation. High school records, university records, tax records, driving license records. And so, if not us, what, how, how do we deal with that particular problem? How might archives and other records offices be resourced to retain, index, and digitize such records? I haven't thought about this before that much. More generally, how might archives be resourced to process their holdings more rapidly? Because again, you're talking about dealing with contemporary problems, not just with historical research so that they could better address immediate as well as future needs for records. Could archives provide expert testimony as to the circumstances behind the production of the record or the copy of the record 
and their expert opinion as to its trustworthiness or status as the best available evidence. Could you actually work with a refugee, with an, with an asylum seeker, um, and go with them and explain the circumstances of the documents that they're producing? Why don't they have the documents that are expect, they're expected to have, or why do the data points differ, for example? Um, could archives in countries of asylum or settlement act on behalf of refugees in issuing requests for certified copies of relevant records about them? So could somebody come to you, for example, and you issue a formal request to another nation for a copy of the record on behalf of that individual? And then if that nation cannot or will not produce the copy, could this institution then certify that 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 document is not available, will, is, has been refused to be made available, or simply doesn't exist. And would that help in any way? We, as I said, we have been connecting to other grand challenge projects that are going on around the world. And the notion of rights in and rights to records is something that has come up in other projects as well, about the kinds of rights that individuals should have not only to access records about themselves or to access copies of records about themselves, but even to have a say in the management and retention of those records. And not just the individual, but the individual's descendants as well, who often may need those records. And that's a, quite a big topic for discussion. I'm going to skip over some of this, and I'm just going to say maybe a couple more things, and then I'm going to turn it over to you again, James. But NGOs have a whole other problem with records and record keeping. Uh, they're working, many of them are working you know, at ground zero. They don't have time to do all of the work they need to do with keeping really good records. But they need those records for their own self-knowledge. They need it to obtain further funding to continue to work. They need it so that other entities will trust the documentation that NGOs are producing. And so there, there are questions about how we might help NGOs um, to manage their records better and to create better records. So um, one of the suggestions that was brought up when we did a symposium in Budapest about six weeks ago was whether NGOs, whether we could promote some kind of risk-based approach to record keeping which was similar to that that was pushed in the 1990s um, with regard to digital record keeping. But it's complicated. Who should be responsible for NGO record keeping and archiving at what points? Some NGOs just hand their records over to some other third party as an archive after the fact, but they're not doing in, in the moment um, proper record keeping. Just a few digital concerns that have come up that maybe might not, people might not have thought about. Um, I mentioned a minute ago about archivists who are engaged in witnessing projects, so trying to document human rights transgressions that are going on on the ground. And so, for example, the Syria archive is an example of this. Is there a way, and that is a video project, is there a way to analyze the kind of digital content that those witnessing projects are creating, um, to an analyze them faster? They're very laborious to do by hand. and. Uh, are those methods scalable as well? These are, these are technical questions. Um, and then what kind of corroborating evidence would also be needed to support their introduction in legal proceedings? The Syria Archive, their, their work has been introduced already um, 
but uh, th these are a particular set of issues. What best practices should be used are feasible to use when archival physical content is digitized, often under less than ideal circumstances, and then transmitted either to sanctuary archives or data havens for preservation purposes. So, so archives themselves that are in danger um, have been doing various kinds of ad hoc digital activities just to get copies of their documents and to try to get them out of, port them out of the country to somewhere that is safer. The, the, the question is, what is the um, most reliable way to do that? What are uh, inexigency digitization practices? How, how much could we tolerate not moving down from, scaling back from best practices under these circumstances? And what are the implications of that? Also, in these kinds of processes, often multiple digital copies end up existing in different places. Um, what kind of um, sort of comparison techniques do we need to see to make sure that none of them are tampered with or which ones are in fact the record copy? Uh, how should sanctuary archives and data ha havens beyond meeting trusted digital repository requirements best inform themselves about protecting themselves and their holdings against digital threats? Uh, we have an issue of hostile countries trying to hack into archives that have been digitized and moved out of the country. How do we have a secure digital transport stream from one location to another? And how do we keep the material safe when it gets to where it's going to? A lot of people are really worried about this. If you are moving um, digitized materials that are, for example, the records of artists or writers, are you going to run into cultural property export laws um, by doing this even for, um, for sanctuary archives purposes? Other two questions here, and I'm going to let James then take over, have to do with biometrically encoded documents and documents that are digitally signed. Um, do archives and records offices have the ability to preserve those documents with those components intact in them? particularly the smaller offices. And also, as company, countries move more and more to using biometrically encoded documents, will that actually help us? Will, the, will they begin to um, coalesce around certain sort of standard practices for working with these, this kind of documentation? Um, so one of our um, research assistants, um, Emma Cummings, has been doing some work on the technology aspects of this and trying to understand uh, what's going on at the moment in this field. And we were not surprised to find from her research that there are a lot of apps in development to help refugees access services and this kind of thing. But I think one of the things that maybe did surprise us was the extent to which blockchain is already being used in this area. So um, these are some examples from from her research, which will be made available on our project website shortly. But we've seen in places like Kenya, where bit, uh, blockchain has been used in, in technologies like M-Pesa or BitPesa, to allow farmers who haven't traditionally had formal bank accounts to exchange money with each other. So perhaps it shouldn't have been a surprise to us that 
NGOs are actually looking into how blockchain can help facilitate access to finances for refugees. So yeah, that's something we're looking at the, at the moment because obviously as a, as a record-making technology, we as archivists need to be thinking about how we're going to be capturing that. And there's a whole set of ethical questions about how if we have some kind of persistent identification for a refugee online, how is that information going to be managed? Yeah, so I think probably I'll, I'll leave it at that. For now. Um, one last slide here. I mentioned it at the beginning, just to say that we actually need new kinds of archival professionals to work in this world. Um, and professionals, some of whom will work in, in sort of third-party institutions and who will work as advocates for refugees or work directly with NGOs or work directly on the ground in conflict areas. We also need human rights lawyers who understand a lot more about how records work, where to, where to find them, how to evaluate the records they find, how to compile them, how to put them together, how to corroborate the information that's in records, and then how also to challenge documentary evidence. There is a course that is taught at Central European University in Budapest, which is doing exactly this, and they're basically preparing lawyers to work with the ICC and they're cross-training archivists, historians and lawyers together, working with the kind of examples that exist in the Open Society archives there. Um, at UCLA, we're hoping to bring, we've got an endowment we're working with to bring up a joint now law clinic with our human rights law students and with the archival studies students at UCLA. Um, we, each of us has been teaching in our own schools in this area and to put them together so that the lawyers are better equipped to deal with these kinds of issues. We need archivists who are trained to work in trans-institutional and transnational contexts and also who can work to develop effective description that will support diasporic access um, and develop new strategies for locating, assessing, using and challenging records and then um, digital specialists who can work with archives and watchdog agencies to ensure secure transmission, preservation and maintenance of their digital records, data and observations against malicious attack, alteration or infiltration. I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you.